remainder of our time this morning, I'd love us to look more intently uh, at Exodus 15, uh, verses 22 to 27. So we left uh, Exodus last year uh, in verse 21, and we're just going to pick it up again in verse uh, 22. Um, And this is going to be the first place where we see God's merciful, gracious provision as the Israelites begin this journey. And so remember, we're picking the narrative up straight after they've crossed the Red Sea. And maybe if you've got your Bible there, you can see the song that they've just been singing, praising God for his remarkable, miraculous delivery out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And then let's pick it up in verse uh, 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord, uh, sorry, yes, there the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 uh, 12 springs and 70 palm trees. And they camped there near the water. So we rejoin the narrative. The people move away from the shores of the Red Sea. um, But that means heading straight into desert. Uh, And one thing that we all know about desert is there's no water. And so it doesn't take long before the people start to notice that the hours turn into days and they are parched. Things aren't looking good, actually. Any stalks, obviously, that they brought with them from Egypt have run dry. And the hot and dry desert is not only sapping the energy from their bodies, but also the hope from their hearts. And so they grumble. And some of us may begin to wonder, how could you so quickly turn to grumbling after the Red Sea? Can you not? It's only three days. Can you not remember the walls of water? I mean, that, that, that's a life-changing moment. How can you then three days later be starting to grumble? Um, I've never spent three days in a desert without water, so I, I don't know that I'm one to comment, but I think it is important for us to realize uh, that, that the grumbling does show us something um, that we need to pay attention to. See, it seems that they're grumbling about a very real and pressing need, Verse 24, it's very simple. So the people grumble against Moses saying, what are we to drink? That's a, that's a straightforward question to ask. It certainly doesn't seem unreasonable to ask that question as you walk three days in a desert. But, but what we do need to understand is that the question shows that their trust in Yahweh is beginning to unravel. This will become a little bit clearer in the chapters that come But it is a warning light for us as readers that the things in the hearts of these pilgrims maybe not be, they're not as solid as we would have hoped. So they've sang on the banks of the Red Sea three days later and and difficulty, real tangible difficulty later, but they're beginning to question. Getting back to, to this account, we see them grumbling and in grumbling they turn to Moses. Now Moses in verse 25 turns to the only source of hope and strength that he knows. So in verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Verse 25, then Moses cried out to the Lord. His instinctive reaction is to go to his God. He he has kept this understanding of who can really be trusted here. The people may be beginning to waver. 
in their trust of God's ability to provide for them. But Moses knows that it is only God who can provide. It is only God who can be trusted in the midst of everything they're going through. And it's only God, as we'll see in the chapters that come, it's only God who can be trusted when things are going well and when things are going poorly in times of need and in times of praise. And as a result of Moses crying out to God, then we see this first tangible physical example of God's merciful provision. God provides. And I find it incredible that there's no sense of questioning from God here. There's no sense of judgment. There's no wondering why the people could be asking. He simply provides. This time it's a, it's a piece of wood that turns the water at Marah from bitter to sweet. And next time they complain in chapter 16, it'll be God providing manna and quail to feed them. Then in chapter 17, it will be military victory. Then it would be strong leadership in chapter 18. Then it would be the gracious law in 19 and 20. Then a place to worship him as the tabernacle details are given. God's gracious provision would go on and on and on. God's gracious provision is bountiful. And so, yes, these Israelite people have had three days of difficulty, but look at where they end up in verse 27. Not only does the water at Marah turn from bitter to sweet, so they can drink, but then in verse 27, they came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. It's an interesting detail, but you just get the impression that this is a bountiful provision. Twelve springs, there's rushing water here, it seems. This is a place of real bountiful, merciful, gracious provision. And, and again, as we read this as 21st century Christians, that we know that bountiful, gracious provision of God. There, there's a pattern emerging here of God seeing a need, of God then graciously meeting that need and meeting it bountifully. Now, in between, in verse 26, uh, we see God passing on a message through Moses. And let's read verse 26 again. If you listen, this is God speaking to Moses, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And we might read that and, and almost read it as a kind of tit-for-tat exchange. You do this, I'll do that. But I'm not sure that that is the best way to read it. If we think about how that conversation started in verse 25, so the second half of verse 25, there the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for the people and put them to the test. Now, what does it mean to be put to the test in this way? Well, I think what God is doing here is what he often does uh, when the Bible describes him as testing his people it's more about helping them to grow in their trust of him. It's about proving their faith to him rather than, than earning the blessing as we might read it. So whenever you see the conditions that God puts, the, the supposed conditions on this, if you, God says, listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, essentially what God is saying is, do you trust me? If you listen carefully and then do it, if you pay attention and then keep those commands, if you listen and do, if you pay attention and keep, if you hear my words and trust them enough to put them into practice, God is, is calling his people to a greater level of trust. And that trust will lead them to action. So it's not just, yes, God, we, we believe, we listen. It's not just we've paid attention. It's that the, how we have listened and how we have paid attention will then impact the way we live. And God here is even uh, showing himself to be worthy of that listening and worthy of that obedience 
at the end of what he says is, for I am the Lord who heals you. Remember, Israel, I am the Lord who who brought you out of Egypt. I've just carried you through the Red Sea. I've provided miraculously for your need. Trust me. And if you do, because my plans are always for my glory among you, then they will, all you need to do is trust and obey. I am the Lord your God who heals you. And so we see this wondrous, merciful provision for God's people as they begin on their journey from the Red Sea to Sinai. We, we see the people having a deep need. We see God graciously providing, them, providing for them in that need. And then we see that the overflow of a thankful heart in response to God's grace will be a transformed, obedient life. We, we see the people with a deep need. We see God graciously meeting that need. And then we see the overflow of a thankful and obedient life. God is, is preparing his people here. He's providing for them for the journey that they're on. He's showing himself to be gracious and generous. And he's already begun to display, even in this first scene, his traveling mercies for them as they move from the banks of the Red Sea towards the promised land eventually. And of course, as readers for us of this really good word, thousands of years after the event, we we can read the glorious account of Exodus here, and, and it is so full of pointers for us towards Jesus, isn't it? It's so full of pointers to that, the greatest provision that could be given for our greatest need. God graciously provides for the greatest need that we have and therefore we live an obedient, transformed life as a response of his grace. And that's what we see in the person of Jesus. That's the joy that we celebrate every time we gather for communion. It's the sacrifice that we reflect on. It's the motivation for our striving to want to know God more and live more faithfully for him. That we too have experienced this gracious, bountiful provision of a God who knows how to dish that out. See, we we can't ever forget that that we were enemies of God. We were separated from him by our sin. That is our greatest need. More than thirst, more than hunger. Our greatest need was that we were separated from him. Yet in his grace, and because, as we'll read in a minute, because of his great love for us, he sent his son, his perfect son, as the atoning sacrifice for my sin and yours. The sacrifice that was paid once and for all, so that all who believe in him, who believe in the the final and finished work of Jesus, that we might have the right to become children of God. Not because of anything we've done to to earn that by our own merit. Not by anything in us that has made us deserving. No, but because of the gracious overflow of a gracious God. And that's the picture that we begin to see in Exodus. It's the picture we see at the cross. It's the picture many of us know and have experienced in our daily lives. And it's the picture that we're now going to reflect on as we come to communion. And as we come to the table, I just want to ask a couple of questions. Firstly, and and most profoundly, do you know Jesus? Do you know his forgiveness for your sins through his death on the cross for you? Are you walking with him today? If not, would you consider laying your life down before him this morning? Would you consider confessing your sin before him, asking him for forgiveness? Would you give him the control of your life? Would you follow him with all of the the ability that you have and the spirit that he will then indwell you with and empowers you to live for him? Will you become a child of his? 
And if you do know Jesus, and many of us do, I realize that, how, how do our lives then demonstrate the kind of dependence upon him that we've been talking about this morning? How are our lives transformed by the grace that we've received? Maybe a little bit like the Israelites here, we see that it's really a question of trust. Where are the areas in my life and my heart that I need to trust God more with? Those areas where I've sought to take back a little bit of control. That control that we long for, but that control that we need to give over. Maybe it's, it's even the, those habits that, that used to keep us so focused on him that we've let slide. Maybe we need to reestablish some of those. Just as you look at your life, how does your life uh, demonstrate that kind of dependence on him? We're going to turn to the table, and as we do, I'd like us to prepare ourselves. Um, and I don't just mean get your bread ready, although that is part of it. Um, but actually, much more deeper than that, the, the examination that, that Paul instructs us to do when we come to share this meal. And let's use this wonderful opportunity again to, to confess those things that have been part of our lives, our, our words, our actions, our thoughts, that we know they're, they're not of God, they're not for him. They displease him. Let's confess those things. It's, it's for those things that Jesus has died. The penalty has already been paid. Let's confess and claim the forgiveness that's there. Uh, and then we want to recognize our, our crucified Savior, the one that we come before, the, the pure and holy and sinless Lamb who died in our place. And to help us do that, uh, I've mentioned it already, to help us do that, let, I just want to read some words from Ephesians 2. Uh, these are words that we've read many times before, but they're so powerful in how they demonstrate this wonderful display of grace but also demonstrate the transformation that takes place when we have experienced that grace from where we were to where we stand now and to where we're going. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. I'll read the first ten verses. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, of who, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. And so we are now his handiwork to do the work that he's planned for us. And so I pray that you know that, that that is your experience, that you know that wonderful transformation of God's grace. And then fueled by his spirit, empowered by him, not as some kind of willpower or self-help thing, but actually empowered by him, you're now living your life uh, obediently transformed, for his glory. And we do all of that. All of that is made possible for us. And we see the, the majesty of the grace that God had to display through the cross of Christ. And so as we come, let's prepare ourselves, as I said. 
and then we'll share it together. If you do have bread with you, please do uh, share that. I'll give thanks for the bread now. Share that whenever uh, you feel ready to. Uh, and then the servers will come forward. I'll give thanks for the wine. And then the servers will come forward uh, and, and distribute the wine among us. So let's